Okay, I have now. Um, uh, no economist ever defended the rational choice model as a precise description of every individual's behavior. But what they said was that it was a good enough description. What we now know is that the deviations from its predictions are systematic and they are substantial. They're not some kind of second-order effect that will disappear in the noise, nor are they... Sorry, they're not kind of second-order effect that doesn't need to be reckoned with, they're substantial, and nor are they random, so that they will disappear in the noise. They're systematic and they're substantial. And furthermore, you don't have to reinvent psychology. Some behavioral economists do try to do so, but you don't need to in order to understand them. The deviations from rationality that we see can be predicted and explained by processes that we know about in cognitive psychology and social psychology. And perhaps there's something to be said from other branches of psychology as well, and all these branches have had a go. For that bit, in a sense, psychologists and decision theorists have brought in. This bit, economists have done for themselves, and all the greater credit, in a sense, they've invented an experimental branch. And people with no psych psychology training, and perhaps the better for that, have invented a branch of ex uh, psych econo economics that we now call experimental economics, and it produces results that are useful in understanding what the real economy is, is doing. You do not, not only do you, <coughs> can you not do the whole of economics a priori, you don't need to. You can bring the classic scientific method to your aid. And it follows from all of that that if we try to do economics without taking account of the way people really behave and why, then we will get it wrong. Okay, a little bit of history of, going, of how we looked for deviations from conventional rationality. <coughs> the early decision theorists, and by early I mean late 40s, 1940s, early 1950s, were fascinated by the idea that they could test rational choice, and they looked at the axioms of rational choice theory and tried to subject them to... Uh, uh, empirical test, but in many ways they chose the wrong ones. They chose, for example, the axiom of transitive choice. You know, if I prefer A to B and B to C, then necessarily I must prefer A to C. And they went looking for failures of transitivity. And they did find some, but they were very small. And they, if anything, they reinforced the belief of economic theorists like Milton Friedman that actually you could ignore any deviations from rationality. However, from the 1970s, bigger fish began to be caught. And here are three major deviations um, uh, from conventional rationality, which between them account for an awful lot of modern behavioral economics. The first thing is, has to do not with rationality as descriptive of outcome, but rationality as descriptive of process. People do not, because they cannot, work out mathematically what is the best thing to do in every situation. Rather, they rely on shortcuts of a variety of sorts. Um, 
Kahneman and Tversky introduced the term heuristics. There's an account of some of those shortcuts. Gerd Gigerenza has gone further, still staying with the idea of a heuristic, but pushing it to the point where he says that heuristics actually will do a better job than optimal choice anyway. And they also take the views of others in, into account. Uh, social norms and other social influences affect economic decisions, sometimes disastrously. That's how we get persuaded sometimes to take unwise purchasing decisions, sometimes even of things that don't even exist, like scams, another of my little corners of research. So shortcuts, the process of decision taking involves a whole lot of shortcuts which will necessarily read, lead to answers that are different from those you'd predict from a pure rationality theory. The second thing is that we're social beings and we're interested in others as well as ourselves. The axiom of greed, the first of the axioms of systematic microeconomics, just ain't true. That emerged most clearly first in the work on the ultimatum game, pioneered by Werner Goot. Um, but the whole concept of a fairness norm, which has been pushed through very hard by Bruno Frey, um, now can be used to predict a great deal about economic behavior that a simple economic theory misses. And finally, and the one which I'm going to talk about most uh, in this, because it relates to the question of debt and credit taking, myopia. People are just terrible at taking decisions between good things that happen at different times. What we call intertemporal choice. And usually that poor performance at such choices takes the form of greatly undervaluing outcomes in the more distant future. And that was the fundamental uh, it's the fundamental problem with what was the really big economic crisis that was bothering us before the credit crisis, which is the pensions crisis. People do not save enough to support themselves in the style they would like in their old age. They just don't. Um, but there's a great deal more evidence uh, for it than that. But the other aspect, uh, uh, failing to save, um, because you don't weigh your future happiness as much as you weigh the happiness that can be had from spending a little more now. Uh, the other side of that is, of course, that people take on more debt than is wise. Because the immediate good of having some money in your hand that you can spend or some commodity that you can buy, perhaps as big a commodity as a house, weighs more heavily on you than the future pain of paying it back. And that literature uh, has been in social psychology for a very long time, um, but it was given new impetus by George Ainsley uh, in his writings in the 1970 and, and sort of 70s and underwritten by data from a very, un, very surprising source, work on animal choice, um, uh, that was done by um, Ainsley with Howie Racklin and fundamentally coming out of Hernstein's lab in Harvard. Now, those are generalities. 
I'm going to be drawing on three specific research programs, uh, two of which I've had quite a lot to do with and one of which I've been a little bit involved with because everybody who works in economic psychology has to be but isn't particularly mine. One is about money. Money is a mystery, psychologically. It's a tremendously strong motivator with no biological, no immediate biological basis. Obviously, we use money to secure things that are of biological importance. Um, but it's so modern, 3,000 years old, perhaps, there's no time for evolution to have planted in our heads um, any apparatus for dealing with money. And it's the only thing that's such a strong motivator as that where we can't see an immediate biological correlate. Debt, I've already mentioned, and here are some of the questions that I've spent a chunk of my career investigating, mostly in relation to very poor people in rather a lot of debt that they don't have much prospect of getting out of. And the third one, which I haven't had much to do with myself, but which is so much in the zeitgeist, is the whole question of happiness and material goods. The vexed relation between income and wealth and happiness or life satisfaction, they have slightly different connotations but are in the same area. Uh, and how those two are related, to which the short answer is not as closely as we would all imagine. How is that relation affected when the income is turned into actual things? So we go from money to consumption. And are those relationships the same? Are those relationships the same for everyone, or are we dealing with important individual differences? So I'm going to be using the results of those three specific programs. So let's start with money. Well, why do we need a psychology of money? My thinking about this was started off. I, my colleague Paul Webley and I had done quite a lot of work around money, and a friend said to us. I don't understand why you need a psychology of money any more than you need a psychology of screwdrivers. Um, it's simply something you use. And it can be understood wholly in terms of what you use it for and what you're like, just as a screwdriver can be understood by what we know about screws and what we know about the human hand and arm. That just connects the two. Well. That set us thinking, and what we came up with is the notion that while it's certainly true that money is a tool, there is something else going on as well. And we used the metaphor, tool is also a metaphor, we added the additional metaphor of money functioning as a drug. In order to explain in part this immensely strong motivating power of money, which I talked about in the absence of any obvious or direct biological basis. We're not saying there isn't one, it's just it's not obvious what it is. The other thing about money that makes it psychologically interesting is its extraordinary power. Not just its power over individual, but, uh, individuals, but its social power. I don't know how many times money has been invented in the world, um, but I've seen estimates as low as 11. That seems a little over-precise to me, but uh, uh, certainly more than once, Chinese and the ancient Greeks or someone else in the Fertile Crescent 
certainly got there independently, and so did a number of cultures in the Americans and Polynesia. How many is not clear, but it has an enormous colonizing power. When a non-monetized society collides with a monetized society, it's the non-monetized who start using money and not vice versa. Now, there is obviously a possible reason for that. It's the monetized society that tends to have the gatling gun and the non-monetized one that tends not to have. It's often a collision between a powerful society and a weaker one, but not necessarily, especially when we look at uh, monies other than that, the sort of core money of the gradually expanding modern, quote-unquote, modern world. And the other thing that's psychologically interesting about money is that it is simply a, a mass confidence trick. You know, it works because people trust it to work, and trust is a psychological phenomenon. Uh, and one of the things that uh, recent events have driven home is just how true this is. Uh, you know, if, if forms of money, like deposits with certain banks, lose that trust, uh, we have a major problem. Uh, that trust is at risk in any recession or other forms of economic crises. And sometimes, of course, such crises affect the money stuff itself. Okay, how are we doing for time? Not too badly, I think. Um, as when you get an inflation crisis. Okay, here's the traditional view. Money is a tool used to gain access to biologically-based incentive. That explains money motivation. And what it's a tool for is trading. It avoids that desperate double coincidence of wants that Adam Smith talked about. Um, uh, but that, that bit's obvious. Here's our alternative take on money. <sighs> Is it sometimes has an overwhelming effect both on our behavior and our feelings. Uh, one example is what's called money illusion. Tversky, many years ago, um, showed that people systematically make systematic errors. This is one, another of those systematic deviations from rationality. When the value of money changes, usually because of inflation, though there are other situations, when you change your currency from a punt to a euro, some uh, odd things happen too. Um, uh, um, even odder, actually, if you go from a Deutschmark to a Euro. It depends which direction you're moving in, as it turns out. Um, but people tend to be, to a certain extent, bewitched by the numbers. The, just the numbers of units. Even though with some part of their brains they know about inflation, they know that real values are not the same as money values, they still feel richer when they have a larger number in their pocket. Uh, then there's a whole lot of things, and this is something Paul Webley, uh, some areas that Paul Webley and I did empirical work on when we were starting on this, um, where there are obvious instrumental uses for money, but they are socially rejected. And though they may still happen, they have to be, as it were, disguised. The one that everyone always talks about is paying for sex. This is not generally regarded as socially a good thing, 
and if it happens, it has to be disguised and sanctified in some way. There's said to be a quote from Havelock Ellis, and I've tried very hard to find it, and I can't, in which he said that marriage differed from prostitution only in being more degrading. Um, the point he was making is that certainly conventional uh, 19th century marriage um, was in fact a very straightforward economic exchange um, be, in which uh, men provided economic resources and women provided them with sexual services. So it had to be very heavily sanctified so that it's difference from more um, obvious forms of that transaction uh, was concealed. It's tremendously taboo to go around buying children or indeed body organs, however much you want or need them. Um, you won't get on very well if you give your mother a cheque for her birthday. Not if you're a young adult. At least you won't think you will. Actually, your mother, it's a secret, your mother wouldn't mind. We did some research on students and their mothers. And students absolutely rejected the idea that they could send their mother a cheque for her birthday. And their mothers said, no, no, the poor dear's busy. <laughs> um, notice how they had to excuse it. And you mustn't, you know, if your neighbour lends you a ladder, you mustn't offer to pay him for it. That's uh, a social faux pas, too. A lot of these things are culture-specific. They're okay in some cultures, not in others. The point we wanted to make here is that uh, there's something weird about money here. Uh, and what's weird about it is that sometimes it goes past the normal instrumental processes and causes us pleasure or pain directly, not because of what it's done for us. And that is the broadest possible definition, possibly stretching at the limits of the broadest possible definition of a drug. Okay, how does that help us in understanding the recession? This talk has a sort of series of three motifs about those three research programs, and each one of them ends with a slide on X and the recession. Well, the bit I want to focus on is actually money illusion. We've all, well, I've certainly lived through enormous rises in house prices. Um, the first house I bought cost, remember pounds? Some of you are too young to remember pounds, probably. Cost 4,500 4, pounds. We had a delayed move into it. By the time we moved in, the house next door was for sale for 8,100 pounds. The sums sound ridiculously small, but the near doubling made us feel ridiculously rich. Ridiculous is the word for it because we were no richer than we were before. We still owned or rather the building society still owned on our behalf, exactly one house. And since we were likely to go on needing one house for the foreseeable future, we were clearly no better off. But by goodness, we felt better off. And because we felt better off, we were more likely to do things that are actually rather risky, like using some of that capital we now had in the house, some of that equity we now had in the house, to back borrowings, which of course is just what people did. Having the equity in the house made that possible, but feeling better off is what made people want to do it. You're more likely, if you feel better off, to save, to spend more money than comes into your bank account in a given month or year, and you're more likely to enter into credit arrangements. 
So probably this very basic money psychology had something to do with why people accepted some of the stupid loans that banks were putting on them. Okay, let's look at debt. The theoretical driver for being interested in debt is that debt is an example of intertemporal choice, as I said. Um, actually, the psychology of debt is much more recent as an area of investigation than the psychology of saving. Um, always recognized as problematic, mainly because people don't do enough of it for rationality-based economics. Uh, Friedman's permanent income theory of the 1950s, one of the first attempts to produce a coherent mathemat mathematicized theory of saving, had to assume that people behaved as though they could get interest on their savings of 33 and a third percent. Now, if you know where you can get that rate of interest, please tell me, but if it's a, the Allied Irish Bank, I'm not interested. <laughs> um, <coughs> so, that was clearly nonsense. And really, at that time, we should have given up on the rationality theory of, uh, of saving. And actually, people did, really, because very soon afterwards, behaviorally-based theories of saving started to appear. Um, Sheffern and Thaler's behavioral life cycle hypothesis of 1988. More or less direct reaction. Because Friedman didn't come out and say, this means rationality is absurd. He said, great, we've got a, we've got a theory. But unfortunately, it was a theory widely at variant with the facts. Um, uh, so basically, the behavioral theories of saving uh, began to appear, say, partly driven by the failure of rational accounts and partly driven by this alternative account of intertemporal choice, which, as I said, emerged from the experiments on animal choice, which suggested that people like pigeons might discount future values, not exponentially, as rationality theory requires, but hyperbolically, which allows you to explain some qualitative phenomena, like preference changes over time, um, that are utterly mysterious on a rational theory. And you know, inconsistency with the data rarely kills a theory. What kills a theory is a better theory. And in many respects, the, um, that is what Sheffern and Thaler gave us uh, by drawing on uh, unsuspected sources of data. Now, in any sort of formal analysis, debt just looks like the mirror image of saving. It's bringing forward consumption from the future into the, into, the part, into the present, rather than pushing off consumption from the saving from the present into the future. Um, and initially, that's what we did. Uh, when we were asked to do some investigations on debt, in fact, by a utility company, Welsh Water, uh, the first thing we did was to go back to everything we knew about the psychology of saving. And the first thing we found was it didn't help us very much. Um, for a start, in people's minds, there's a big distinction between three different situations, all of which, in logical, economic, or accountancy terms, are the same. Any situation where I owe you money is a debt situation. But actually, 
people tend to distinguish three situations. I already talked about credit use, as we often call it. Well, I borrowed something. The person I borrowed from it agreed, borrowed it from agreed I could have it. We probably signed a contract, and we agreed how we were going to pay it back, and we're on track. We're doing that. The payments are being kept up. It's fine. It's credit use. We only start wafting the money debt, word debt around when we get into a situation where things are not under control in quite the same way. I owe you money, and I should have paid it last week, but I haven't, for whatever reason. I could, though I'd probably have to not do something else that I wanted to do. I could pay it back, uh, but I haven't. I'm in debt. And then that can slide over into what we usually call problem or crisis debt, where I couldn't. Not even if I sold myself into slavery, which I'm not allowed to do anyway, um, could I repay uh, what I owe you. And then we have a problem. Um, so that was the first fact we stumbled on. And the second fact we stumbled onto is that people simply didn't think in terms of trading off present against future consumption or of the total cost of doing that or anything of that sort. What well, the only question they asked themselves is, can I afford the repayments? And I think we all know that that's how it works because uh, we know what happens when the mortgage interest rate changes, goes down, mortgage interest rate goes down, price of houses go up, goes up because people can afford bigger repayments, or repayments on a bigger capital sum. That's just some comments on what we found, what we and others have found, looking at what I call debt psychology and poverty psychology, the psychology of poor debtors. Our key sample were people whom the utility companies, and we've worked with a number, were suing because they hadn't paid their water bills or whatever, and People only let themselves get sued if they actually can't pay at all. Um, the reason they let themselves get sued is that the courts generally have a more realistic view of the rate at which they could pay back than the creditors do. Um, and that was driven by, so that, that bit of work was driven by the fact that as public utilities were privatised in the uh, by the Thatcher government in the 1980s. By the 1990s, they were beginning to run into problems of intractable debt, which had been dealt with by a very different way when they were public bodies. The other thing that drove our interest was the, the move, which happened in, I think, most countries, um, but different timetables and to different extents, from grants to loans in higher education. So we had large numbers of people, some of them rather conveniently handy for us, for working on, um, who had significant debts and weren't used to the idea. Um, and from the mid-90s, we started working on student debt. The only project I've ever done, been involved in, I think, where students were actually the participants of choice rather than just the participants of convenience. Um, they rather came together because although Exeter students particularly are not don't by any stretch of the imagination tend to come from poor families, students traditionally have lived on not very much money and have had a fairly um, uh, low 
spend lifestyle in a sort of way. And the psychology of this kind of debt turns out to be, in many respects, a sub-department of the psychology of poverty. And its major explanatory factors are indeed economic, how big your income is, how big your family is, that sort of thing. However, there is a wrinkle to that. Often it's not absolute poverty, but poverty relative to some reference group or other. Very nice book by um, Elizabeth Warren and Theresa Sullivan, uh, American law and sociology academics called As We Forgive Our Debtors, where they extracted data from bankruptcy records. One of the few ways in which you can get a 100% return rate into a questionnaire to, um, to debtors is by being the bankruptcy court. And um, looking at what the, you know, reconstructing the case histories, what had happened very often was that people were not living an impossible lifestyle, but they were modeling their lifestyle on a social group to which their income did not give them entry. The other thing that emerges in this area is just how bad at managing money young adults are. Sorry, all those, uh, see a sea of people who are probably in this bracket in front of me, but generally speaking, people in, from 15 to 25, maybe up to 30, uh, make some pretty bad financial errors. And it's jolly useful if you're a student while you do that, when there's a whole lot of welfare resources and family safety nets and so on around. And it's jolly bad luck if you're a poor young person with not much family and what you've got, not having any money anyway, you may never get out of it. And some of our poor debtors, you could trace it right back to fairly simple errors made when they were young. The other thing we looked at in this debt sample, in our debt samples, was how they managed money. Because one of the things people in bad debt tend to do is to say that I must be a, I, I'm a terrible manager of money. We think actually that's, um, that, that's as it were, a self-attribution. Uh, gosh, I'm in debt, so I must be a bad money manager. Because when you look at what people do, well, I'm glad, I think they manage much better than I would if I had that little money and that, that number of demands on it. They have all sorts of strategies, some of them which would not be approved of by the people they owe money to, but which keep them afloat. Um, I've listed some there and I won't go through them all, uh, but they're practical coping strategies that develop over long exposure to a difficult situation. Okay, how can we use any of that to inform the, our understanding of the recession? Well, I think the first thing to do, in some sense, is not exactly to set it aside, but to recognize its limitations. Because I think what the recession is producing are some less familiar varieties of debt that don't fit this framework of um, poverty-induced debt we have a lot of people having sudden losses of income. Now that does happen in the cause of, the, of uh, people with um, in what I call poverty debt, but usually they didn't have a lot of income to begin with, and then they lost that. Um, often the breakup of a marriage, uh, sometimes the formation of a marriage, you can marry debt, unfortunately. Um, but when you get a sudden loss of income, Debt is likely to follow 
if you don't adjust your reference group fast enough, if you go on trying to live the lifestyle of the people you consider yourself to be like, and you may no longer be like them, they may no longer be like it either. Um, another thing that's going to happen is, and we've seen it happen, in a sense this is just, you could just sum that up with the one word subprime. Formerly affordable credit arrangements becoming unaffordable. And the other thing is that we're going to need a psychology of acute debt. Most of what we've done so far has been on chronic debt. People have been in debt for a long time and have no obvious way of getting out of it. Whereas actually, in a recession situation, you're going to get a lot of people who are suddenly plunged into debt and do have the possibility of working their way out of it. How are they going to do that? Will they dissave? Will they change their lifestyle? Will they take lower prestige jobs? What will they do? I don't think we know the answer to that. It's going to be interesting in a slightly macabre way, finding out. Okay, let's turn to my third theme, income and happiness. Here are some stylized facts about the effects of income on happiness. Over time, as national income goes up, national happiness does not in any advanced country. That was the thing that, this is the paradox that started this whole research area off. When you look across nations or across a single nation, there is some correlation, though not very good, between income and happiness. And it's very much moderated by reference income, that idea of a reference group coming around again. And the better educated you are, and the more used you are to living in a modern society, the weaker the effect. So the effect's stronger in former Soviet countries, for, former communist countries, than it is in Western Europe, for example. The, the correlation is stronger. That's not to say that income has nothing to do with happiness. One of the oldest bits of data in economic psychology is that the admissions to mental hospitals in the days when there were such things track the stock market or the business cycle. You know, when, when there's a downturn in the business cycle, more people get depressed and they end up in mental hospitals. But that's a minority effect. However, coming back to the relation between income and materialism, even if you hold education, income, experience of advanced economies and so on constant, people vary in how much they think money and material goods affect their happiness. And people, so Belk and Richin, uh, Russ Belk, Martha Richin's invented scales, psychometric scales that let us measure how much people believe income and possessions contribute to happiness. And there's quite a lot of variation in that. And the people who score high on that factor are the least happy. So what can materialism say about the recession? Well, let's remind ourselves of Russ, what I think is in many ways Russ Belt's greatest paper, Possessions and the Extended Self, exploring how we use the things we own as extensions of our sense of self. And like any good uh, scholar, he points out that he's not inventing this idea. It goes right back to William James, the father of uh, 20th century psychology. 
A man's self is the sum total of all that he can call his. Interesting that he can call his wife and children his. Well, we still talk about my wife, my husband, my ancestors and friends. I don't own them. But his, la <coughs> his house, his lands, his yacht, his bank account. Things you own that become part of yourself, are treated as part of yourself. So that if they are stolen from you, you feel injured. And if you can't have them, you feel disabled. And among those possessions, housing has a particularly key role. The symbolic body for the family is Belk's ringing phrase. The test of personhood in our society, according to this person whose name I never even try to pronounce. Thank you. Jolly good. It's convinced me anyway. Put that together and you're going to want more people trying, trying to own houses, houses than makes any sense. So, macroeconomic psychology. Has there been a mass psychology in these three areas that we've talked about that's contributed to our present crisis? And if so, can we get rid of it? And can we use the, what we know about it to help get out of it? Well, what I want to suggest is that mass psychology might be made up of three disastrous heuristics, one of which is drawn from each of those areas, though not in the same order. And the first one is the rule which I think you know, everybody's parents have said to them, better to own a house than rent one. And the second one is the one we've already talked about. It's a good thing when house prices go up. It makes us all better off. And the third one, Again, I've already talked about if you can afford the repayments, you can afford the wrong. Um, the loan. Three good rules for operating in the economic climate of the early noughties that contributed to, in my view, substantially to the problems of the late noughties. Here's how. First, consider ownership and possession. And what you can see is some crazy rates of home ownership. I thought the UK's was bad enough, and then I checked out Ireland. 77% um, owner-occupancy. Uh, we all think the Germans and the Swiss are the sensible people of Europe. 43% and 39%. Uh, quite what's going on in Lithuania, I don't know. <laughs> but it's interesting that Iceland's up there above Ireland. Um, now... This isn't all about excess demand driven by crazy psychology of ownership. There's things about the biases in tax systems and housing markets that actually encourage owner occupancy beyond the rational. A guy called Barassa has done a lot of work on those. A sense of despair as he publishes yet another paper pointing out that this, that or other subsidy will just distort things and cause people to buy houses who shouldn't. Um, <coughs> but there probably are you know, something like a quarter of the population in countries like the UK or Ireland are owning houses where it may not be the best thing for them to do. And that may well be that they, I mean, their credit arrangements aren't the best they could be. Uh, secondly, we can go through this fairly quickly. Money illusion caused by the regular doublings of house prices. Um, uh, of course... Again, 
Yeah, it's not pure psychology. There are some objective advantages you get when the value of your house moves up. <laughs> but they depend on the fact that house prices never will fall. Now, I remember there have been times when house prices fell. I bought a house at the end of 1992, and its price fell very significantly by the end of 1993. But most of you weren't around buying houses then. You don't have a lot of experience of them. And it was all came out all right in the end for me, too, so I kind of forgot about it. We really don't have any heuristics available for dealing with a falling housing market. And finally, the affordable loan, another disastrous statistics. People don't do interest calculations. The salient feature when choosing between any agreed credit arrangement is that repayment. And that goes right down to people borrowing from the van man in the scummiest housing estates in South Wales. It's whether you can afford the, what you've got to pay every week that drives the decision, not what it costs overall. And that's perfectly sensible as long as nothing goes wrong. And the US subprime market, which triggered the whole mess, um, people took loans where they had affordable repayments for the first two years, and being myopic as we are, they didn't notice that two years later, there was no way they could ever afford to pay it. So here we have, conveniently, all beginning with M, I hope you remember my mnemonic for the psychology of the causation of the recession. Hmm. Materialism, money illusion, myopia. Now, every one of the, here's my caveat again. Every one of those has a rational as well as a heuristic component. There are always technical issues around, always things to do with the behavior of banks. All macroeconomic effects always follow from multiple causation. But psychology is in there somewhere. And if we ignore it, we won't understand the whole story. Well, much shorter, can we do anything about it? Doing something about recessions runs you into the Keynesian paradox. We can only get out of this mess if people actually become less myopic, save more and borrow less. But in the short term, recovery depends on people being willing to spend, or the governments being willing to spend for us. And that's difficult. Keynes cut through this Gordian knot characteristically by saying, well, in the long run, we'll all be dead. So we don't need to worry about that. Let's think what we need to do in the short run. I don't think we have that luxury. We need to be a bit cleverer than that. And the key, I think, is looking at going back to George Katona, whom I measured at the beginning. He pinned a lot of importance on a group he identified from survey data as the better, better group. The people who feel their economic conditions have improved recently and feel they will improve in the near future. Now, the problem is there aren't a lot of those around in a recession because the better, better group are the people who are going to spend us out of the recession if anyone is. Because in a recession, everybody feels affected. They're quite wrong. There's a small group of people who are directly affected. They've lost their job, their business has gone bust. They've had a real drop of income. But there's a much larger group who are frightened. They're not sure their job is secure. They're not sure their business will last a year. Or 
their friend has lost his job, or their partner's lost her job, or whatever. They're indirect effects. But there's an even larger group who are as good as immune. Okay? Nobody's going to sack me. The reason they're not going to sack me is that I'm retiring next year. There wouldn't be any point. They couldn't save any money. And nobody's going to reduce my pension either. You know, the recession just goes straight past me. Okay, I'm going to have to pay a bit more tax to pay, pay off a lot of what someone in the pay letters to the paper referred to as a bunch of bankers. Um, uh, okay, they're going to have to be paid, but you know, tax rises, though politics turns on them, have a very marginal effect on our feelings about how good we are, how good things are. They don't stop us taking major decisions in our life. But we're affected by this atmosphere, which is set up by the media, it's set up by what politicians say and the kind of policy they put through. And actually, we know quite a lot about what the psychological effects of a bad economic atmosphere are. They cause escapism in things like fashion and um, uh, literature and pop music and so on. You can recognize the types of things that tends to get produced and they tend to make us conservative economically, which is just what we don't need to be. We've done that. Um, all I, uh, we've done this bit. There is the important bit. The boundaries between these sectors are actually fuzzy. Whether you really have anything to be afraid of or not, how badly you've really been affected, even if you have had some effect, whether you're really immune or not, it's not clear. And so that where people feel, on my Friday diagram, where people feel they are, can be influenced by politicians, the media, and other public sources. So, how might we use that fact? Well, what we need to do, clearly, is to ensure that those who really are immune, or how only are at small risk of being affected, don't become more conservative than they should. And governments can often do that by putting in safety nets. I mean, actually, of course, the, this recession was managed much better than the 1930s because bank deposits were safety netted, effectively, so that we didn't get runs on banks, at least. Practically everything else, but we didn't get runs on banks. Um, so building confidence at the margins so that you move more people into the immune or feeling immune area where they will do things and then encourage those people to spend in particular ways not a lot of toys from China please but get your shower fixed by the neighborhood plumber okay do things that recycle money into the economy with a high multiplier in Keynesian economic terms and then don't forget that money illusion can work both ways. People with negative equity in their houses feel very poor, even though they've still got exactly one house and they're living in it and they're not in any danger of being thrown out of it because they're keeping up the mortgage payments, which aren't any more than they used to be, sometimes even less. So you need to overcome that issue too. And again, safety netting may be... The and then you need to deal with the real casualties. Do everything you can for them. Well, that was the end of the slides, at least. Um, I think there should be one more, and I've somehow missed it. But 
uh, let's find it. Yes, it's telling me to stop at slide 36, and there's actually slide 38. Right. So, Envoy. This is the end. I say this has been footnote free. I've omitted, omitted the detailed evidence, but I could have provided it. But I want to draw out one other thing. Almost all the data I could have pulled on would have been dismissed by a typical 20th century econo economist as soft. It involved asking people questions rather than looking at the numbers of the economy. But what the recession tells us is that everything in the economy is soft. Everything that happens depends on people's confidence in what will happen. And the hard data are perfectly meaningless, except insofar as they express subjective qualities like how much people are willing to pay for things. So in conclusion, there is no economy without psychology, and therefore, we can't get an economic recovery without a psychological recovery in the sense of more people feeling that whatever may be happening to the banks and the unemployed, they are all right, Jack, and they will go out and spend money doing things that give other people jobs. So understanding what's going on and what could go on psychologically is not an extra but it's an essential. I gave a very shortened version of this talk last month in the Houses of Parliament in uh, London. Um, and I wanted to stress this point about the need to get multiplier spending going. And as it happened, not many um, members of the House of Commons were there uh, because there was a, a very related debate going on, the sort of thing that happens if you agree to talk in Parliament. But there are plenty of peers there so I had real pleasure in finishing off the talk with a quotation from Hilaire Belloc, apropos of high multiplier spending, and also apropos of my own deep dislike of DIY. Lord Finchley tried to mend the electric light. It struck him dead, and serve him right. It is the duty of the wealthy man to give employment to the artisan, especially in a recession. <laughs>
I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't advocate that happening uh, in, in the form of tariffs and, and quotas and so on in classic economic protectionism. I think that one of the things we have seen over the last 30-odd years is the very strong potential influence of um, what we might call non-pecuniary motivation in consumer behavior and the huge growth of fair trade in certain uh, fair trade goods in certain uh, organic products in certain sectors though not in all shows that consumers are ready to care about things other than just getting the cheapest deal or the best um, uh, the best value for money and uh, such so-called ethical spending you know, the ethics it reflects can be very variable. You know, it could be protect the dolphins, it could be a decent wage for the coffee farmer, or it could be buy British. Or do you, ha do you ever have a buy Irish campaign? We've certainly had endless buy British campaigns uh, in my lifetime. Buy American, they have them too. Um, now that is in a way parochial. Uh, but I think that actually you know, China is continuing to grow. That actually there's no great benefit to the world economy in pushing more growth into Chinese manufacturing. There is substantial growth in the, uh, uh, benefit to the world economy and at second remove to the Chinese economy in causing the American economy, the British economy, the Irish economy to get out of a situation where they're just going nowhere and people, um, people including economic managers feel powerless and the whole thing feels rudderless. So I think putting our own house in order, our own relatively small national economic house in order, probably may be the best thing we could do. I also think it's a very easy sell. <laughs> But I wouldn't think of it in terms of legislation, but rather of what um, you know, we as consumers, if we realize that we are okay in this situation, what can we do to help those who are not okay, paradoxically, spending? <laughs> Hi. I, I haven't yeah I haven't seen anything yet yeah. I mean certainly in t in not in uh, academic uh, publications and you might expect to see it in some sort of government statistical things because increasingly the big government um, survey you know, the regular government surveys include some soft quote and unquote soft data about confidence and so on I guess where I'd be looking would be um, surely the surveys of um, uh, consumer confidence should be tracking it, but I don't, I don't think anyone's written that up yet. I certainly haven't seen it published, nor have I seen it as a reviewer. And certainly if it concerned debt or credit behavior, I am almost certain to end up reviewing it. <laughs> it's, uh, at least if it goes to, to certain journals, because I just get everything in, in that area, um, and I don't always 
agree to review it, of course. But no, I, I don't think anything's happening yet. I suspect people are beavering away. Um, but I don't think anything much is... I don't think anything is out yet. But I could be proved wrong. What would is it like people feel threatened, therefore their well-being is down, or do they actually have to be in that red going for mental health? Well, we know that the people who's, who actually end up in, um, in mental health issues will be people in the red group. Yeah. That I, you know, unemployment, debt, unmanageable debt, now seems to be an independent uh, now seems to be well recognised as an independent source of depression, cause of depression, over and above just having a low income, just being in poverty, um, or being unemployed, which, of course, gets you with both barrels because it makes you poor and it also does other things to you in terms of making you feel useless. So I think we're going to pick that up um, uh, from the red group. Uh, the I think, but I've not done it systematically, and I, I have read the literature on what happens to fashion and popular music and, and films, high-selling films and books and so on in recessions, and I think I can see the usual sort of recession stuff coming through, or its sales coming through, because it's too quick for it to be produced, but of course there's always a surplus of stuff being produced. Um, so I think there's, there's that around, uh, is beginning to happen. Um, do, do you mind if I break now? Because I think, I think people, some yep. people are going to go and, and... Could I really encourage people... I know some of you are staying now, but if, uh, if anybody wants to drop in either here or into Kevin Denny's office in the next, uh, in the next couple of hours, I think Stephen yeah. would be very yes. happy. And I can testify, being very familiar with his work, that there was a, a volume of papers backing up uh, uh, each of those slides, and it's brilliant to get such a, uh, an overview of, of really 20 or more years of work, so thank you very much. Mm -hmm.